0: City. If I haven't had not a chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of our community this morning. <clears throat> my wife and I have three kids, three boys, ages four, five, and seven. So they are Definitely old enough that when they get in trouble, there's a wide range of emotional reactions. And, and there, there are some times where uh, it's just outright defiance, and that's a little frustrating because <laughs> they're not learning the lesson. Uh, then there are some times where uh, it's complete indifference, which is probably even more frustrating. <laughs> they're like, I don't even care. And then there's other times where, you know, they, they, they're, they're understanding it a bit more, and there's maybe a sense of sadness that, steps, that, that, that follows when they uh, get in trouble. But then there's one every now and then, every now and then, you can see a reaction of shame. And man, that one's, that one's heartbreaking to watch. Because, like, they, they, they get in trouble and the, the punishment is there and you can see, like, a thousand different emotions that are, that's hitting a five-year-old, right? That's hitting a six-year-old. And, like, like they can't process it. And they just don't know how to, like, navigate that emotional fog. And it, so often, like, what happens is they just, end up, they just end up running to their room. They go in the door and, and they, they close the door and they go in the closet and they just hide. Like, their gut reaction is separation, I just want to get away from my parents. I want to hide from what I've done. Hide from my parents. It's just they just want distance. You know that's a that's a, a child's reaction to shame. But I, I think you and know, I could both know, could both say that's not just a child's reaction to shame. Right? That that happens to adults too. It's almost like there's this force in us that's just kind of compelling us to just want to hide. Like when there's something that's happened in our life, we've sinned or we, ha- we haven't done quite what we thought we should do, and that, that just makes us just want to hide, thinking that we need to go away from everybody else. Maybe we foolishly think that everybody wants us to go away, or if we've, if we've sinned against the Lord, then we, we know, okay, that we've sinned against Him. And so <clears> that carries this certain amount of, of shame before the Lord. And so, like our sin, it just feels like there's an uncovering. Or, or revealing a dark part of our, ourselves that we just, we just want to cover it back up again. Like, we just want to hide it. We just want it to go away. And so this shame drives separation from God, from others, and, 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 from, and so, so much so to where it seems like the only solution, right? It seems like the only desirable outcome is really just, just isolation. I just want to be by myself and just removal from community, But you and I both know that 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 actually makes shame grow exponentially more and even be expressed in all sorts of other broken ways such as bitterness and resentment, callousness towards God, callousness towards other people. In Exodus 25, God gives the Israelites line-by-line instructions for how he wants them to build the tabernacle for how he wants them to build a place of worship now I need to give the backstory because it's a considerable amount leading up to Exodus 25 but it's we'll start here this will be a recap if you've missed the past couple weeks or so for the past 400 years before Exodus 25 the Israelites they've been enslaved to the Egyptian empire where they have uh, been Pharaoh's slaves. You know, they've worked the fields, they've uh, made the bricks, they've mined the gold, and, and, and along the way, they've built Pharaoh's opulent palaces. Now, the whole time that they're serving as slaves in the Egyptian empire, they're also holding on to a promise, holding on to the hope of a promise that God made to their forefather Abraham 400 years ago. God told them that he would make Abraham into a great nation, that he would bless, uh, bless his descendants, turn him into this great nation. But there would be a time of suffering. There'd be a time of suffering where they'd be enslaved for close to 400 years, for over 400 years. But then, when they come out of slavery, they'll come out with great wealth, great possessions, and be able to come back to their own land, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. So as the Israelites are suffering, they're holding on to this hope. One day, God's going to honor this promise. One day, this will pass. But, you know, while they're slaves, they're thinking the only way this is going to happen is if a miracle occurs or if God divinely intervenes on our behalf. And sure enough, we've seen throughout the book of Exodus, that's taken place. God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and and, uh, out of slavery and towards the promised land. Now, the, the... I guess the catalyst or the big change that happens from going to slaves to being free people was Pharaoh had to let them go. And if you remember, we saw how God, let's just say, encouraged Pharaoh with 10 different plagues to, to let the people go. And finally, after that, Moses relents and, and says, fine, y'all leave, get out of here. But when the Israelites are leaving, he actually commands the Egyptians to give them gold and silver and supplies for their journey. So, as the Israelites are making their way out, as they're leaving, as they're escaping Egypt, they're actually given all this gold, all these silver. So, they leave well supplied, well financed, and, and they leave mindful that God has been faithful to, our, to the promise of Abraham over 400 years. Ago. The ten plagues were not the only miracles that they saw. I mean, if you know the story, they they see God do all sorts of miraculous uh, events. He parts the Red Sea. He gives water and food to them in the middle of the desert. He uh, leads them as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. So they see the presence of God up in front of them, leading them, guiding them, this physical manifestation once more, in their journey, they stop at a place called Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to meet with the Lord because the presence of God rests on top of Mount Sinai, and it's, he's there and the, like represented as a cloud with all sorts of thunder and lightning and smoke coming from it. It's, it's you know it's a kind of a, um, a very uh, transcendent type of a scene, if you will. But, but Moses goes and meets with God and communes with him, and the Israelites would be able to see and, and see God's presence up on the mountain. And so the whole time, and look, it's not not been like years and years, this is over the span of days, weeks, just over a month, they've been able to see all this happen. And the whole time they're going to be very aware, very cognizant of the presence of God in their midst. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire in front of them, God's presence up on the mountain. They see God's power and might in divine, miraculous, you know, all inducing type of ways. And in Exodus 25, In Exodus 25, it it, it starts to change, not in the sense of of losing a sense of awe or worship or reverence for the Lord, but in Exodus 25, they're going to see a transition happen because when God gives the instructions for building this dwelling place, it's instructions for how God is coming near to them. He's not just up on the mountain. It's showing that God is wanting to come and dwell among the Israelites. And so God gives them instructions for how to build the tabernacle of God. Now, the the word tabernacle is weird. You might know what it is. You might not. But what it is, it's basically a tent. Uh, The Israelites were, as they were traveling to the promised land, they were living in tents themselves because they're moving. They're on the move. And so they have a a portable house a trailer. And so, you know, they've they've got the the tent with them on the way. And God says, I want you to build for me uh, my dwelling place. I want you to build for me a tabernacle. Now that might raise a whole list of other questions, like, isn't God too big for a tent? <laughs> right? And also, if this is supposed to be a place of worship, I thought God is, is omnipresent, so he's everywhere. So can't, do we have to go to a place to worship him? Can we worship him from everywhere? And, and, and if that's a question that we're asking about the Old Testament, could we also just ask that about churches in general? Like, can't we just, you know, worship God anywhere, and anywhere? Like, why do we need to come to church? And I would say, like, yes, God is everywhere. You can worship him from everywhere. You can worship him from any place. A place of worship, a sanctuary such as this, is a place where we tangibly create physical space for God in our life. Um, not that we're making a graven image or anything like that, but it's, it's, we're being deliberate, deliberate with our interaction with God. We want to, to, to create a space, create an environment that helps us remove distractions from connecting with Him and remove distractions from connecting with other people. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what a place of worship can help us do. And um, what's more, remember, God created our senses. He knows exactly how we were made. And, and, and God shows, and we see that pattern in Scripture, that we need designated places of worship to be able to connect, with, to, to help us connect with Him, to help us connect to help us connect with him in that way. And so if you've been with Grace City for a while, this, our place of worship has changed over the years, right? We started in a vacant office building and then we were in a rented school and now we're in this place. And had we been Israelites traveling to the promised land, it would have been a tent in the desert. And in Exodus 25, God gives instructions for building this tabernacle. And it's a pretty, it's an exhaustive list, but there's a lot of parts. There's a lot of supplies that needs to be gathered. And this is where you drop in the text, Exodus 25 verses 1 through 8. And, uh, if, and again, if you've been at Grace City for a while, we've been in this text before because there's just so many cool things happening in it. So we're back in it one more time. Exodus 25, 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You receive the offering for me from everyone whose hearts prompt them to give. <clears throat> These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and another type of, du- uh, and another type of durable leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. One of the first points of this that that pop out to me is when God says, receive from the people an offering from those whose hearts prompt them to give. Moses, don't force them. Don't compel them to do this. Um, just put the need in front of the people, and then I'm going to prompt their hearts to give and receive from them the offering that, that they're going to give. So this is going to be a commu- the community responding to the prompting of God in their lives, bringing these supplies for the building of the tabernacle. Once more, with this list of all these different parts that are involved, it's, it's really... Uh, A wide range of lists like there's gold and silver but there's also acacia wood which was all over the Sinai region there's all these fine linen and expensive yarns but there's also goat hair and so like everybody from every part of the community could be able to contribute something and once more remember they got all their gold about 40 days before this while the Egyptians gave it to them so they're really just being open-handed with the with with what God has already delivered to them so now they're giving this they're to give this back in, in in response then in chapter 35, a few chapters after this, you can see a list of all the different uh, services that would be needed to build the tabernacle. Like goldsmiths, silversmiths, cutters, carpenters, artisans, designers, embroiders, weavers. All of these services would be needed and they would need supplies from the entire community. And so, all, and, and so I'm making this point five different times in the past 30 seconds. This is too big for one man. This is too big for just Moses. It's going to take the community, every part of the community coming together to help build this tabernacle. So what you see is this project, this, this God-ordained work that he's given to the Israelites, this is going to fight against isolationism. This is going to fight against trying to withdraw into oneself. It's, it's, it's leading people to come, of, of, to come out of hiding, to come out of, uh, out, out of uh, their isolationism if they're there, to come and take their place in the community as they work to build the tabernacle. And then once they've gathered all the supplies, once the community responds, once the workmen are procured, what does God say he'll do? Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell in it. No. It says, I will dwell among them. As the community serves this way, as they, as they serve God this way, as they serve one another this way, God says, I will come and I will dwell among them. He's not confined to a tent. It's a place of worship, but it's a visual representation that God's not distant anymore. That God's not, that he, that he really never was. He's not just up on top of the mountain. He's not just a pillar of cloud in front of them, a pillar of fire in front of them. He's now coming, dwelling within the community, dwelling, within, uh, dwelling among the Israelites. God's drawing near, God's instructions for how to build this place of worship shows to all of them that God is close to them, that he is for them. If you were with us last week, we looked at at man's idea for building a place of worship. Because last week we were in Exodus chapter 32, which was the account of the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. This is the same group of people... All right, the same group of people that, that saw all the miraculous works of God, saw the miracles, saw everything that God had done to bless them. They go to Aaron and they say, you make us gods. You make us gods. You make us something to worship. You create for us the worship experience. And when they give this challenge to Aaron, Aaron simply says, well, then you bring me your gold. God says, collect from the community those whose hearts prompt them to give. Aaron says, you bring me your gold. You know, with the tabernacle, there was deliberateness, there was intentionality, there was a preparation to worship the Lord. With the golden calf, there's no deliberateness, there's no intentionality. It's, hey, we want to worship something. Give our gold to Aaron, we'll worship whatever you make for us, Aaron. And Aaron forms the calf, which we saw last week was really, you know, connecting back to all the false ways of worship that they had seen in the Egyptian culture. They worshiped all these false gods and goddesses. So they just quickly revert back to what they had seen. In their time of slavery, revert back to how they had seen worship expressed among the Egyptians, and now they use that in expressing their worship, and it just corrupts and defiles all of it. And, and we saw that last week, right? How, how God rejected their worship, how God, re, you know, saw what they were doing as evil, of, of worshiping false gods, and he judged them in that worship. We didn't get to this part of the story last week, but, but the back half of 32, it shows a reckoning. Over 3,000 Israelites are put to death for worship of the false god, for, worshiping, uh, for, for worshiping in that way and worshiping of the false gods. And over, uh, <clears throat> over 3,000 put to death for doing that and leading others to do the same. Yet there were also people within the Israelite community that rejected the false worship, that remained faithful to the Lord and were doing everything they could do to try to turn Israel back towards the one true God. And here is where I think shame is a part of the equation. You might have said, David, we were talking about shame, and now we're talking about tabernacles. Like, what happened to your sermon? I, I, I think this, I think this is where the shame, shame would come up. I think it would rise up full force for the Israelites. Because again, they like God's done ten plagues to free them. Right? He's He's part of the Red Sea to save them. He's given them water and food in the desert to feed them, to, to, to satisfy their thirst, to satisfy their hungry. they their 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 Satisfy their hunger, whatever the word is, to satisfy them that way, right, he's, he's gone before him pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, they've watched him move in all these different ways, and then we saw it last week, right, Moses goes away for a day, a week, or, or a couple weeks, they think he's gone, they're not sure what's going to happen, we don't know about worshiping God anymore, so let's just go back to what we know. And they just revert back to their old ways. And then, you know, God rejects it. So they see, hey, we were off, we were wrong. And now they see a slaughtering of the people as well. And they're just like, what did we do to ourselves? What do we do to our relationship to the Lord? Like, what's happening? And there would be, you know, within the community, right? Like, those, like, I don't know if I can can associate with them because they worship the golden calf. I don't know if I can associate with them because, you know, they didn't, Can I be here. And so there's just, this beats just, all that shame would just run them muck on God's people can we even worship him can we even be one people anymore they see their sin and feel, the experience, and feel and experience the consequences of sin throughout the entire community and yes I think shame would lay hold along the way and threaten to push them towards isolation damage their uh, damage their soul leading them to retreat from one another and leading them to retreat from the Lord who they sinned against Yet even, even after this, even after the golden calf incident, God's commands are still for them. God's desire is still for them. God still desires for them. God still allows for them to come back and build the tabernacle. He still wants to bless them in this way. He still wants to give to them a representation of his presence among his people. And it's at this point that the Israelites have a choice to make. The Israelites have a choice to make here. They can continue to wallow in their sin and, 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 and let shame produce the compound interest of bitterness and isolation and a toxic soul, or they can come back and trust. They can come back and trust God still loves. God is still for us. God is still near us. God still is coming close to us, and he wants us to respond and worship to him. They've got a choice to make. Look, like we, we, we know this when we're not in the clutches of our shame. And I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know where you are this morning. I, I, I don't. This is like, when I, as soon as I brought up shame, some of you went right to the thing. Like you went through the mental Rolodex and you're like, man, I still feel shame over that. It happened last week. It happened last month it happened seven years ago or it might not be a thing that happened you might be carrying shame because I should have done enough I should have done more I can't believe I didn't and so like whatever it is for you there are so many times where like just that we can just feel like we're under just this cloud of shame and and when we're, when we're under that when we're feeling that it can be so hard to make sense of everything so when we're not under the clutches of our shame like we know the cure for it. The cure for shame, you know, it's, it's, it's not isolationism, it's, it's not being by ourselves, it's not withdrawal. The cure for shame, it's community and relationship. The cure for shame is, is, is presence with others and an awareness of the, pres- of, pre- of the presence of God in one's life and how your sin didn't drive him away. Your sin didn't drive him away, but like a doctor to a patient, he comes closer to mend the afflictions of our soul. To show us that his, his grace is there for us, right? And like, we, we, we know that. We see that. And so it's the, the, the cure is, is a coming together with God's people. And it's, it's being mindful of God's presence with us. His grace and love is for us. And here the Israelites, they had a decision to make too. They could wallow in their sin or they could trust that God is who he says he is. He's loving, that he's faithful, that he's restorative, that he's graceful. And so they have a decision to make. And the Israelites, we see their response in Exodus 36. In Exodus 36, it's an overwhelming response. They reject the pull to isolation from the Lord. They reject the pull to isolation from each other. And the community responds to build a place of worship. Look at this, 36 verse 2. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab. Those were two men that he had tasked with the work previously. And every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, The people are bringing more than enough to do the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained. bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work so I mean you can see it right there's just an overwhelming response by the community the workmen are showing up they're trying to you know silversmith or goldsmith or whatever they're trying to do and people are just bringing all this stuff to them they can't even get their work done because people like here use this use this and Moses actually has to tell people hey stop bringing your gifts I mean, honestly, have you ever heard a church construction project where that was told to the people? Right? Like, like it's just, but it happens here. Like there's such an overwhelming response by the community coming back for this, to worship in this way, to, to, to do this in this way. So although they missed with the golden calf, they get this right. The community coming closer together with each other and with the Lord in worship of him. And all this is going to push back against the shame. It's going to push back against shame, against that which would keep them away from knowing what the Lord wants them to know and experiencing what the Lord wants them to experience. Because look at what happens when they finish the the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 through 38, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Uh, That was was Moses' tent where he met with the Lord, not the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's what they've been building. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift out, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and, uh, and fire was in the cloud by night, in sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. God comes and he dwells among them. He honors his promise and his glory resides among the people. I mean, this, this is even after, the, even after the golden calf, even after the golden calf, even after their sin, even after their false worship, after all the times of grumbling, complaining, and griping against the Lord, the glory of God still comes and fills the tabernacle. And, and what, does that, what does that do? Like the Israelites are able to look and, and, and see this tangible representation of the Lord among them during all their travels. This answers the question, doesn't it? They don't have to wonder anymore. Does God want to be near me? Can I be near to God? Does God want to be close? They don't have to wonder that. They would see it and they would know it and they would experience it, that God was there dwelling among his people. Now, there's a a progression in the text, all right? There's a progression in the text that goes from... um, God giving the instructions to the Israelites to build the tabernacle during their time of journey from, uh, from Egypt to Israel. So the tabernacle is a place of worship on their travel. Then the next step in the progression is when they're in the promised land and they settle the land. Uh, the, the tabernacle is um, almost, oh, well, yeah replaced by the temple. The temple becomes the next step in it. The temple is also a place of worship. It's a place that would remind the Israelites of God's presence with them in and among the promised land. And then the next step in that progression is Christ. Christ, God in the flesh, who comes to dwell among his people. 1 John, or John chapter 1, verse 14, says it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, the, 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 the truth is that we are sinners, right? The truth is that we are sinners. Christ's perfection, his sinless life points to this truth, and also points to the reality that there's, because of our sin, like there's no way we're going to be able to get to God, there's no way we're going to be able to get to to heaven of our own merit, there's no way that we're going to be able to get there. However, he's full of truth and grace, and what we see with Christ is that he comes and he takes our sin onto him, and makes a way for his righteousness to be given in return, and in so doing... (laughs) The bridge is, 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 there's a gap over the bridge, right? The separation is, is removed. Like there's, God comes close. He he's, he's doesn't stay distant. He really never was. He drew near and through Christ made a way for us to be with him. And, and look, so, so often we can give just like mental assent to that. All right, especially if you grew up in the South, man. Cultural Christianity, like so many of you can rattle off the gospel. You know this. Like, I mean, it's, 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 you, just, you, can, you can say, that. I know that he came close, I know that he loves me, but, but man, so often we don't let that fight back against our shame. We don't let it fight back against our shame, like, and, and it absolutely should. It should fight back against shame, against doubt, against everything that pulls us towards isolation from God and from his people, because we're always mindful of the truth that Christ came to dwell among the broken, to help all learn and see that in him the broken are restored, We just have to realize he's come near. He's come close. We trust in him and we allow him to do that work. We allow him to do that work, right? It's in the the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, all right? the, The Apostle Paul, the one for known for his bloody and violent past, right? Like, and he's the one that wrote, like, half the New Testament. If you don't know Paul's backstory, before he came to know Christ, he persecuted Christians. That's why he was known for his bloody and violent past. And again, if you're brought up in the, in the, in the deep south and heard the stories, you know the story of Paul. Like, we know that's part of his backstory. But, I mean, really think about it. With that being his past, like, that's his baggage, that's part of his story. He did those things. Like, that would be the shame that he carries, or could carry. I mean, think about it. When he goes into the, these different churches and he sits down to worship, he could look up and see the kid that he orphaned. I, how, do you, how do you carry that? How do you carry that? And yet, Paul. Paul's the one who, who writes in Romans 8, if anyone is in Christ, there is no con- not because he's innocent, he threw the stones. Not because he's innocent, like, I mean, he, he drove people out of, the, out of house churches, right? Like, he did that, that was part of his past but there's no condemnation because of Christ's atoning work who frees us from our sin. No condemnation because of Christ's work that brings about our forgiveness and gives us life in him. It's a work that Christ has done completely. It's a work that we just simply must trust in. And this is what Paul is driving at. Like that enables Paul to be able to get up and go again, not because of anything that he's done, but because of everything that Christ has done. And so it's like, there's no condemnation in him. It's brought about forgiveness. It's Freed us. And he goes on from there to continue to, to just kind of explain that teaching all the more. But then he starts talking about some of the hardship that the church in Rome was encountering, some of the persecution that they were facing. And no doubt there was, it would just be judgment from the culture around them, shame that they were just experiencing some of that hardship. And at the end of all that, Paul gives this just gripping two verses in Romans 8 38 and 39. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The sermon in a sentence that maybe just some of you need to hear. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You can go back to that thing you can go back to that place you can go back to what they did to you nothing can separate from the love that God has for you it's the hope of the gospel it's the hope of There's so many times where we let shame run that play, right? So many times where there's that pull towards isolation. So many times where there's that, uh, we just let sin run its course, shame bring about that compound interest, or however you want to say it. So many times where it lets us pull away, and Paul says, no, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Jesus. Jesus came to dwell among the broken to reside among the sinner, the outcast, the overlooked, to show that his love redeems, restores, calls us out of our sin, calls us out of our shame, calls us to repentance. And it is a complete and total redemptive work that he has done on our behalf. And so, know this. I mean, it's the trajectory that God has given us throughout his entire word, right? Sin happens in the garden and ever since then God has come close saying I still want to make a way for you to be with me. We see it in the Old Testament through the tabernacle and the temple and we see it in the New Testament with Christ that we can know that the work is finished. It is done. He has made a way for us to be with him and so grace city hear me when I say this come out of your hiding. Come out of your shame and know that Christ. Loved you so much he came and dwelled among us and he is full of grace and truth. Let that truth drive out fear and insecurities knowing, knowing that you are loved and pursued by the one true sovereign God who has come near to you. And then may that presence in your life, may his presence in your life drive out shame and condemnation because you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, nothing.